name's Sam, if you don't know me. Uh, I'm one of the elders here in the church. So I've got another announcement uh, for anyone who might be interested, and that is starting next term on a Sunday afternoon, probably about 4 p.m., we're going to be running a preaching course, so learning how to preach the Word of God. Uh, And so that'll go roughly for an hour, hour and a half, three hours, I don't know, Um, but we'll run that on a Sunday afternoon, uh, and the idea is uh, that's open for men and women. So ladies, if you feel like you might have a call to become uh, a female conference speaker or something like that, open to you to come along as well uh, and learn how to prepare and preach the Word of God. And so that will entail, uh, you know, how to research, how to understand a passage of Scripture, how to structure it. Plus, we'll be giving like short five-minute devotions in the group as we practice and learn to unfold how to proclaim the Word of God. Now, this will be open for partners in the church only, and that's because simply there needs to be some kind of accountability on this. It's sharing the Word of God, and I'll explain why. The reason for that is this. What we're aiming for is in term four... At roughly 5 p.m., you'll be able to, anyone in the church will be able to come down on a 5 p.m. on a Sunday evening and hear somebody give a sermon from that group. So everyone in the group is going to be working towards being able to prepare and share uh, a sermon. So that's the goal. So you'll be working in term three to develop your skills in term four. You will be sharing the Word of God. Now, for the ladies, we're a complementarian church, uh, and so rather than do that uh, at a 5 p.m. on a Sunday, we'll just simply organize like a small women's event, um, and we will have, uh, if we have any women sign up, we'll organize an event uh, where any of the ladies who want to can come along and hear these ladies preach the Word of God who have been learning to do so. So that is the plan that we're going to start, so we'll be advertising this over the next few weeks, so if you're interested, come and have a chat to me specifically, and I will uh, talk to you about what it entails more, and you can get on your way to learning about preaching the Word of God. Is that clear? So, come and have a chat to me if that interests you. All right. When I was about 18, 19, uh, I was driving home one day through back streets uh, in my Alex Tirana. Just had to drop that in. Uh, Anyway, and, uh, and I was driving home, and I came across uh, an older lady standing in the middle of the road, waving her arms to stop. And so I pulled over, and she basically yelled at me that her house was on fire, her grandson uh, was in the house, and there was flames everywhere. So I jumped out of my car, and I ran over to the door, and there was smoke and flames, and I could hear a baby crying. Uh, and so I couldn't see beyond the smoke, and so I literally just plunged through. And it was fairly open in the kitchen. You could straight away see that uh, something on the stove had caught fire and had spread up and around the walls. Uh, And so I rapidly grabbed, went to a cupboard, found some blankets and smothered things as best I could, uh, ran, grabbed the baby, uh, ran outside, passed the child to the grandmother and said that the fire was out. Uh, then I heard a siren coming and I thought, everything will be fine now. Got in my car and drove off. Um, because, I don't know, I was so full of adrenaline that um, I, don't know, I, you know, I was sort of shaking as I drove home because you you're full of that adrenaline rush. And anyway, look, I've told a few people that story, not many, 
And, uh, and a couple of people have said the same thing, you know. Oh, that, that's incredibly brave, or that took a lot of courage. And here's the thing on reflection. I don't think it did. I generally don't. It was just spur of the moment. You, you pull up, and you've got an old lady telling you there's a, a child at risk, and you can hear the baby crying, and you get this big shot of adrenaline, which thankfully stops the brain functioning, I think. And, um, and, and you just do it, right? So it, it, it just sort of happened. I genuinely believe that real courage and bravery are not found in those rare, few dramatic moments of life, but they're found in making the tough choices of daily life, where there's no adrenaline rush, there's no baby's life on the line. They're simply the daily decisions to put others ahead of yourselves, like the Scripture asks us to to forgive when we find forgiveness hard. I think these are the marks of courage. It's living out the gospel, not in the heat of the moment, but in the dullness of the moment. Now that's, I think, biblical courage. I want to read to you, I shared this once at a men's brahi, but I, I just love this. It's a little excerpt about the battle of Dunkirk in World War II. And this was a, a newspaper article that was released about that battle. And the guy was not a Christian. He's simply writing about this battle that took place. Now, if you're unaware of the battle, really quickly, we had 400,000 Allied troops who were stranded. They were stuck in this small village of Dunkirk. And we had the Germans bearing down on them who were just bombing them to bits, like many died, okay? And they were stuck there. And the only reason they weren't completely decimated was the Germans stopped and decided to fix their tanks, do maintenance and repairs. Uh, and as soon as the tanks were repaired, literally all 400,000 were going to die. So Winston Churchill decided to do what he could, which was he put out a call across England to every man who had a boat and said, take your boat, sail across the channel, and save people. Now, these boats were going to be bombed. They were going to be under fire themselves, but that's what they did. So, between May 26 and 4th of June 1940, about 850 private boats sailed from Ramsgate, England, to Dunkirk in France, and rescued more than 336,000 British, French, and Allied soldiers. The soldiers themselves loaded the injured onto the boats first and just kept fighting as long as they could to defend those who were injured. Pretty incredible, isn't it? So, this man, Bob Duffus, writing for a newspaper, he wrote an article about that event. I just want you to listen carefully to what he writes. Now, remember, he's writing from a non-Christian perspective. It's not about Christ, but I just want you to listen to what he says. In one of the darkest hours of World War II, so long as the English tongue survives, the word Dunkirk will be spoken with reverence. For in that harbour in such a hell as never blazed on earth before, at the end of a lost battle, the rags and blemishes that have hidden the soul of democracy fell away. There, beaten but unconquered, in shining splendour, she faced the enemy. They sent away the wounded first. Men died so that others could escape. 
It was not so simple a thing as courage, which the Nazis had in plenty. It was not so simple a thing as discipline, which can be hammered into a man by a drill sergeant. It was not the result of careful planning, for there could have been little. It was the common man of the free country, rising out in glory, out of mill, office, factory, mine, farm, and ship, applying to war the lessons he learned when he went down the shaft to bring out trapped comrades, when he hurled the lifeboat through the surf, when he endured poverty and hard work for his children's sake. This shining thing in the souls of free men, Hitler cannot command or attain or conquer. He has crushed it where he could from German hearts. It is the great tradition of democracy. It is the future. It is victory. Oof. Don't seem to write like that anymore, do they? How incredible, right? I love in that piece, rising out of farm, office, enduring poverty and hard work for his kids, the daily grind of life that forms the character of courage and bravery to be found in the mighty moments. Learned, developed in the day-to-day toughness of life. Right? This is the reality of courage and bravery. Right? It's making the right decisions day after day after day as you put Jesus first. This is where Peter is going to bring us to together this morning. The opportunity to glorify the Lord daily in the small decisions we make. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter 3 and we're going to read 13 to 17. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. Amen. All right, so this ties into last week's passage that the Lord's eyes are on the righteous. He listens to those who are living an upright life. And this brings us in turn to this week's statement, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Now, this could be a simple question about life. If you do what's right, who would ever harm you? But that doesn't quite add up, does it? Like, if you were living under a regime like the Nazis we just read about, and you did what was good, but just not in their eyes, they would definitely harm you. The context doesn't work in what Peter's talking about in just talking about general 
life. Now, Peter keeps bringing us back to the reality of eternity. He's just said God is going to listen to the prayers of the righteous. And here, what our passage is saying is, who's going to harm you if you do what's good? And his focus is eternity. Who is going to harm you in eternity if you live the right life according to God? Church, who's going to harm you in eternity? No one. Like we're told, God will hold you in his hand. For harm to become you in eternity means they've got to be able to harm God himself. Impossible. Right? So Peter is saying, listen, live that upright life. Live a good life. Live out what the scripture calls you to. Day by day, choose to do what is good That has to be your focus because if you live a life of Christ-centered faith and you live out the reality every day in your home, every day in the office, every day on the sporting field, as you live out your faith, it doesn't matter what happens to you ultimately because in eternity, no one will harm you. That's what Peter's saying. Right? So we don't need to fear. If we are devoted to good, we cannot suffer eternally. We cannot suffer eternally. Peter is reminding us again and again and again. I feel like I talk about this every week, and that's probably because I do. But this world is not our home. Right? He's trying to shift our gaze. Every week we're seeing he's trying to shift our gaze. You are aliens and strangers in the world. You are born again to an imperishable hope that we have in Christ. And that glory, that eternity, His fame is what drives us every day. Church, here's the reality. If you're looking for your treasure on earth, and obeying Christ risks that treasure then you will risk not obeying Jesus, right? So if your goal is treasure on earth and obeying Christ risks the treasure, then we may not obey Jesus. If, however, you're looking for your treasure in heaven and obeying Christ is how you receive it as you live out the faith that he's given you, then you will obey. Where's our goal? What's our hope for? Earthly reward or eternal treasure? This is what Peter keeps trying to bring home to us again and again and again. So Peter says, right, in eternity you're not going to suffer. You will not suffer for choosing to obey Christ every day. In verse 14, it's probably better translated, indeed, Indeed, if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. In other words, Peter is saying, if you suffer even though you are acting righteously, even though you are acting out good, God himself is going to bless you. Again, the focus is on the eternal reward, not on the earthly consequence. Right? Even if you should suffer because you're living out the gospel, you're living out what the gospel requires you to, you are going to be blessed by God. Okay? Shifting our gaze from the world to eternity. 
Right? This is what we're going to grasp. This is common in the Scripture, by the way. This is Matthew 5, 10 to 12. This is Jesus speaking, right? Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Isn't that amazing? Be glad. Why be glad? Why, why does Jesus say be glad when they persecute you and they insult you? He says, because heaven. Right? Because, because the earth is not our goal. Because your reward in eternity is great. Lift your gaze is the constant refrain of Scripture. And it just cannot be overemphasized how much this matters. As I've said, if we're living for earthly gratification, we only do what's necessary to receive that gratification or we give up when we don't. Right? It works all the time. I want a good marriage, it's not being reciprocated, so I give up. I work hard at my job and I don't get the promotion, so I give up. I become bitter and happy because I come to church waiting for people to recognize how spiritual I am and no one seems to be recognizing it, so I give up, right? So if we're looking for earthly fruit, if we're looking for earthly gratification in our life, sooner or later we get full of pride, we get full of bitterness, we get full of anger, we get miserable because people aren't recognizing how good we are, whatever it might be, we just get so frustrated we start a house church, right? This is, this is where we go when we're so bitter that everyone won't recognize how talented I am, right? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Lift your eyes to heaven because that is where your reward sits. That is where it sits. And so we don't love to earn love. We love because the love of Christ is in us. We don't forgive because we want to get that reciprocated. We forgive because we've been forgiven, Right? It, it's the love of Christ. It's the relationship with Christ. It's our eyes on eternity that flow through us. But it goes further than that and deeper than that. This is about those who might persecute us for doing good. It's about suffering for righteousness. But at the end of verse 14, it says, Do not fear them or be intimidated. Now, that's really key. Our focus on Christ means that we don't have to fear or be intimidated. Now remember, Peter is writing to the persecuted church. He's writing to the church where the people, uh, sure, they're sinners, but they're not doing anything wrong. They're not rebelling against society. There's not a reason for the government to harm them, but they are suffering for their faith. And Peter says, don't fear them or be intimidated. Why is all this so critically important? Because if we take our eyes off Christ, then the earthly forces against us grow. The earthly consequences of our actions get bigger in our eyes. The less we look at Christ, the more the world becomes a problem. Right? We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Remember, to become a Christian, 
means that you die to this life. We don't earn our salvation. Salvation is of grace and grace alone. You don't add Jesus to your life. He doesn't come to fulfill your dreams. He doesn't come to make you feel better about yourself. He comes to be Lord and Master. He comes to take over. He is the reason, the purpose, the direction of our life. Paul says, the life I now live in the body, I live for Christ. It's about Him. Full stop. Everything about us is now for Jesus. He is the goal of what I do in the body. Every activity I partake in, eating food, loving someone, sex, whatever it is I do, everything I do is for the glory of God. It's His body and I live for Him. Right? Everything about my life should be about Jesus. Our goal, our desire, our purpose is about Christ. Hence, the only way to become a Christian is to admit we're a sinner, admit we deserve damnation, die to that life that deserves damnation, and receive life in Jesus. Right? It's a new life. We're born again, filled with the Spirit, and our whole life is given over to Christ. So this is what Peter is saying. You live your life with one goal, Jesus and His glory. And if you do that, the world and its intimidation fades away. Right? You have one goal, Christ and pleasing Him. He moves on in verse 15 to further explain why we've got to center our hearts completely on Christ, why our treasure must be found there. In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, right? Regard Jesus, the Lord, as holy. In other words, hold Christ in that reverent fear. Hold Christ as the Lord alone to whom you live for. Hold Christ as the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, when you hold him in that position, why would you fear anyone else? Remember, quick story. I love this story so much in the Bible, favorite passage along with the rest of the Bible. But anyway, um, this particular story, the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and a storm blows up. You know the story well. And they're absolutely freaking out. We're all going to die. The waves are everywhere. And it says they were fearful for their lives. What was Jesus doing, by the way? Does everyone remember? Sleeping, which is just awesome. Uh, anyway, so he's sleeping, and they wake him up, and they're like, we're, we're terrified, we're, well, no, we're fearful that we're going to die. And Jesus stands up, and in a word, bang, calms the storm. And then it says the disciples were terrified. Interesting, right? They were fearful. Now they come face to face with who Jesus is, and they're terrified. Why? Because the one who controls the storm is to be feared way more than the storm, amen? Like, when they catch a glimpse of the fact that the world itself must obey his command, they're like, who are we sharing a boat with right now? That's a genuinely good question, isn't it? Like, they are terrified. In that brief instance, they catch a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And it terrifies them. 
Remember, this is Jesus who can turn some fish and bread in enough to feed thousands. He can create out of nothing. He can command demons, showing he has authority over the spiritual. He can heal illnesses. He can raise the dead, showing he has authority over the life. Knowing who Jesus really is should terrify you. I say that honestly, church. He holds all things together. If he speaks it, it happens. And he is holy and will not tolerate sin. How does that make you feel? It should terrify you. But knowing that he loved you and gave himself up for you, creates the tension of the reverent fear Scripture keeps talking about. But this is how we hold and view Jesus. The one who should terrify us in his awesome holiness, combined with the fact that he gave his life for you. That creates a tension. Understanding and knowing the love of God and the reality of the power he holds. This is the reverent fear of God. So this is who Jesus is and this is how we are to hold him in our life and knowing that reality, knowing who he is, knowing what he did to buy us out of sin. He paid the penalty. As we hold him in that position, why would we fear earthly authority? Right? Why would we fear them when we know who Christ is who has a hold of our life. And Peter says, point blank, why this matters so much, why this is almost one of the most pivotal parts of the entirety of the Scripture. Because if you don't hold Jesus in that position, if you don't hold him in that reverent fear, verse 15 ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, if Jesus is held in the right place in your life, if you have that reverent fear of his power, authority, and love, if he dwarfs any other fear or evil intent in the world, you will not hesitate in telling them of the hope that you profess. Right? This is why it's so crucially important. God has said, great commission, go into all the world, making disciples, telling them all, right? Everything Jesus has commanded you. And you won't do it if you fear the world. You won't do it if you fear man. You won't do it if your treasure is found in earthly things. You will do it if Christ alone is the one you hold in reverent fear. That is why this matters so much. That's why this is crucially important. Who is Jesus to you? If he is the Lord and you live a life for his glory in submission to him, you will tell people the good news because he has called you to. If you hold earthly treasure as your reward, if you are fear of losing your popularity in the world, then you will not tell people the good news. This is the crucial part of our text. Note what it says, though. It's really, I want to be fair and not just yell at you, right? Note what it says. Always be ready when what? Catch what it says in our passage? Come on, someone yell it out at me. Always be ready when what? 
someone asks you a question about your hope. That's really important. Why is someone going to ask you a question about your hope? Well, the reality is this life can be tough, can't it? It can be brutal. We've had a big example of that over the last couple of weeks here in our church as we were rallied to pray. Could be a lot of things, couldn't it? It can be COVID and all the lockdowns. It could be the financial stress that that caused for a lot of people, watching a business die, not knowing how we're going to pay the mortgage. It, it could be a horrible boss and all the employees suffering could be a chronic illness, a chronic condition that comes upon someone. And yet for the Christian, holding Christ as our key hope of glory and eternal reward, we have a hope that cannot be taken or shattered. We have a hope that the world doesn't possess. And with our eyes fixed on Christ, in the midst of darkness, the light of the love of Christ shines in the true Christian. Right? The light of Christ shines in darkened souls. And so in the midst of heartache, in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, which are real, which are hard, people look at you and see you have a hope still that they don't. And so they say to you, why? Why are you still hopeful? Why are you still positive? Why are you still able to smile? Why are you still able to speak well of that person who has been so horrible to us? Jesus. That's the answer, isn't it? Jesus. Right? I have salvation in Christ. He paid the penalty of my sin. He promises me an eternal, undefiled home that cannot be taken from me when I will behold him face to face and in a moment I'll be like him and in, and in a moment all suffering will be gone, all pain will be gone and in fact he himself will wipe every tear from my eye. He will wipe away the pain that I've experienced in my life and all I will know is joy shining by the glory of Christ. And you ask me why well, I've got hope? This is what Peter is saying. If that's you, then people are going to say, what is it? What is it about you? Jesus. No fear of man. No fear of ridicule. No fear of persecution. The hope of Christ expressed in our life and attitude and always ready to give an answer when someone asks. Oh, but you're not allowed to talk about the good news. Blah, blah, blah. Of course you can. Because Jesus tells you to. Right? Be sensible. But when someone asks, you give them an answer for the hope you have. Amen? And that can look in lots of different ways, can't it? Like, great story recently, because, you know, you just don't, necessarily pick some people in the church for being a little gospel monster, but um, 
they're out there, right? And they're, they're willing to share their faith. And, and I was having a chat with, um, you know, Diane, not naming names. Anyway, anyway, and she was telling me recently, she caught an escalator in a big shopping center in Brisbane or the Sunshine Coast, can't remember where. But anyway, she went up this escalator. And as she came up the top, there were a whole lot of, lot of people there in their pride gear, all their rainbows on, um, having this big pride sort of celebration at the entry to the shopping center. And, and as she came up, just being typical Diane, she was probably just smiling up a storm because that's her. And, uh, and one of them said, you look like somebody who's filled with the love of God. That's what one of these, and she just stopped and went, actually, I am. Are you? How good is that, right? Next, you know, she's sitting there having a conversation with these guys in their pride celebration about Jesus, right? Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you profess. So it could be as random as that out on the street, or it could be when you've been working alongside the same person for 25 years who's never shown any interest in the gospel and has always shut you down whenever you've tried, and then one day, out of the blue, they say, I need to know something more. And you're like, yes, I've been praying for this for 25 years. Let's go. Right? Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you profess. By holding Christ as our reward, as our treasure in reverent fear, with no fear of man, we are always going to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we profess. Verse 16, do so with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Now look, quickly, you can straight away assume here we're talking about the focus again is on the other person. Make sure you treat them with gentleness and respect. But I don't think so. Peter always has this eschatological view, this end time view, the bigger picture view of God. And what he's saying here is as you give an answer of the hope we profess, be aware of the presence of God. Right, Coram Deo, before the face of God, that Latin phrase I shared with you, the reformers always talked about, live your life before the face of God. Peter is saying, as you undertake to always give an answer for the hope that you profess, do so being aware that you are before the face of God. In other words, how you speak, how you defend the gospel, how you explain your hope, do so knowing that God is present and is your witness. In other words, don't resort to insult, don't resort to evil, don't resort to like, finally, I can rub it in your face. No, be aware that you are representing God and do so in gentleness and respect because of your relationship with God. Let that always be the governing factor in your interactions, right? So forget 25 years of the worst boss in history who's been nothing but an incredible jerk. Forget that. You've got a moment to represent Jesus. Right? That's what it comes down to. Take your moment to represent Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. Like I said, Christ is present. That's not meant to create fear in sharing. It's not meant to stop you from telling people of the good news. It's meant to make you aware that you are representing God as you offer a defense of the hope that you profess. To finish with, verse 17 it's better to suffer for doing good if that is God's will than for doing evil. The good thing about this passage is in context what it's saying is this. 
There are those who want to claim that everything bad that happens to them is because of their righteousness. Right? I stubbed my toe and it must be an attack on me because I'm so godly and the devil's trying to upset my godliness. The reason people at work are mean is because I'm so godly. The reality is you're not a nice person or you're lazy. Right? And Peter is saying, no, you could be facing consequences because of your sin. Stop it is what Peter is saying. In other words, if you suffer because you are honoring Christ, that's okay. God's going to bless you. But be aware, you could be suffering because you're not honoring Christ. Stop it. All right? It's better to suffer for the sake of righteousness than because you're being selfish. Okay? So it's a warning to say, make sure you live your life according to the character of God. In short, church... Live a godly life, holding Christ in reverence. In the midst of trial, let your hope shine to those who are losing theirs because it's based on worldly things. Every day, take opportunity to shine the light of the glory of God in small acts that show His goodness and grace. That is the courage to be Christian. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its challenge. Lord, we know we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Lord, we are solely dependent on you. And yet, Lord, as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we grow in your character, we long to live out the righteousness of Christ at home, at work, at play. Lord, we long to bring that character of Christ into everyday life, in everyday moments, in everyday conversations. May the hope we have in Jesus shine in dark places. Lord, may we always be ready to explain the hope that we have, which cannot be taken. Lord, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.